Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Tour Daily Podcast, everybody. We're coming to you from sad French corner, uh, site of Thibaut Pinot and Roman Bardet getting overhauled by Steve Cummings last time we had this exact same finish. And Johnny, set the scene for me. It's an exciting one. We've just had riders come past us on the final... I think the final bend with 500 meters to go, just had Simon Geschke fly past with his polka dot jersey unzipped. About a minute before that, we saw Michael Matthews, the first rider to pass us of the race, shaking his head in disbelief, I think, that he'd infiltrated the breakaway, which, you know, who kn who back then, who knew the tactic of that? Maybe it would have been better to wait for a sprint, but he hit out on the climb after the breakaway got whittled down. Betiel caught him, passed him, dropped him. Michael Matthews fought back, came past, had a quite a big gap by the flat after the top of the climb, and an impressive victory. A super impressive victory. I think if you had just looked at the group that was in that in that move and and tried to pick somebody who was going to win up a extremely steep, extremely difficult climb up here to the Mond Airport runway thingy, I don't think he would have been my top pick. Although he is, he's good pals with uh, Tade Pagaccia and trains with him quite a lot, so maybe Tade's been sharing some tips. I mean, the way he blasted up that climb was, he was a man possessed, but maybe that's a result of him having come close before and he's like, you know, this time I'm, I'm not coming second. You could tell that he wanted it. I mean, Betty all came by and we thought that was probably it. Betty all sort of on paper, probably better on a climb like that. But Matthews did not give up and just clawed his way back right past. He looked, he looked like a happy man coming by us. He did, and two stage wins for Bike Exchange now this tour, which is more than a lot of other teams. And not necessarily a team you would have thought would um, be doubling up on stage victories this tour. You thought maybe Groenewegen would win one or Matthews would win one, but a great tour for them now. Well, we've got, uh, it was 13 minutes when I think the, they hit the bottom of the climb, so we've got a fair amount of time till the the GC group comes up and we see a Pogacar Vingago battle, hopefully. So I'm going to hit pause here and then we'll chat about that once we watch it. We are once again supported today by Velocio Apparel. Velocio Apparel is driven to find a better way in cycling apparel from unrivaled performance to sustainable fabrics. Velocio guarantees it will improve your cycling experience or you can return it for a full refund. Try any Velocio Apparel piece and return it for a full refund, full refund, with no questions asked if you aren't completely satisfied. Listeners to the Cycling Tips podcast can try Velocio now using the code CYCLINGTIPS20 for 20% off your first order. Learn more at Velocio.cc. That's V-E-L-O-C-I-O dot C-C. And thanks to Velocio for sponsoring today's episode. We're back inside the press tent uh, in front of the television. We just got a glimpse of the front of the GC group on the climb. It looks to be whittled, have been whittled down quite a lot so far. Got Vlasov hanging on to the back. There's a gap between Vlasov, Bardet, Quintana, Shim, and there oh. goes Tadej Pogacar. Attacks, the white jersey attacks the yellow jersey. Vingago straight on his wheel has collapsed in the press room. <laughs> um, really there's been a lot of clapping today, which is it's yeah, not, it's really not good. It's not, it's not We're supposed the sun. to be oh, I don't know, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it and whatnot. <laughs> not that that counts for anything. Those two have gone clear. The two Ineos riders are behind. I think that's Garrett Thomas and Adam Yates. Tom Pickock was already dropped earlier. I think Rob Hatch has got to watch out for his job here, Johnny. <laughs> I really think he'll be okay too. Um, <laughs> 
Tadej Pogacar is, he's pacing. Vingegaard, all he has to do is hang on to, to the back of his wheel. They're on the yellow strip at the minute, up the, up the climb, which is quite cool, and someone painstakingly painted a long, a lot a of long yellow, distance. A yeah. lot of yellow, and, and it's a very steep climb, and we drove up earlier, and uh, just anecdotally, two of our colleagues nearly caught their cars on fire on yes. the way up. Uh, we had some smoking clutches, and we had an actual car caught on fire. Uh, Ian, you reported on this story while sitting in the back of our moving rental car earlier today. I made myself quite car sick in the process. I'm, I'm not much of a, a type one driver, but uh, I thought this was an important story for us to cover. A, a police car caught on fire one kilometer from the top of the climb. The reason I was particularly excited about this police car catching on fire was because it was a Dacia Duster, which is a car that I have found very funny for about three or four years. What, what, what is the source of the humor with the Dacia Duster? I think the name Duster is very funny to me. Uh, it's not It's not what I'd call a good looking car. It's kind of like a small four wheel drive. Um, yeah. I'm I mean, quite partial to the Sendero personally. I, I have not seen this. It's can... like a duster, but shorter. Okay, that, yeah. that sounds great. <laughs> a little cutie. Meanwhile, the bike race is still going on and uh, Pogaccia and Vingegaard have already taken out 25 seconds on Geraint Thomas and Adam Yates. Roman Bardet has jumped across to their group. Got about 2.7K to the finish for the for Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard. They're nearly at the top of the climb, about 1.7 kilometers to go. So a reasonable gap, really. And after that, they left it quite late. I mean, you know, once again, an illustration of the fact that this is truly a, a it's a bike race of two riders at this point. Uh, they're... I think these two will be minutes clear of everybody else by the end of the Pyrenees. They're already creating huge gaps. I mean, this isn't a particularly long climb. It is hard, but not particularly long. I mean, any climb that Michael Matthews wins up is, is not a, it's, it's no Horikam. Uh, but still, if they're, if they're able to put this kind of distance into GC rivals on a, on a climb like this, I mean, when we go through the Pyrenees, it's going to be just devastation, I think. Roman Bardet is now, he's now 20 seconds behind Thomas, so he must have dropped back off that group. The gap sort of stabilized just under the half minute mark. Pogaccio was on his pedals there a bit. Vingo just holding the wheel. This is going to be the problem for Tadej Pogaccio, though, for the, for the rest of this race, is that Vingo has no reason to ever take a pull, ever. And so Tadej Pogacar is going to have to get rid of him. Uh, it's going to take, I think, some some trickery or perhaps some very steep slopes where that draft is is less useful. But this is this is Pogacar's problem right now. I mean, We're look at it in real time. Look at their faces there. Vingo was is like he was sitting down, you know, watching watching Love Island <laughs> on the TV with uh, maybe with Jacob Kennison, Trek Sekafredo's press officer. Love Island, Jacob. Yeah. Pogacar's just sort of kicked again. Maybe he's on the pedals, but he's he's looking in like he's exerting more effort than Vingegaard at the minute. So we just saw David Godu come round and past the two Ineos riders and now Pogaccia is sort of putting the pressure on again under at the top of the, is that at the top of the climb? 2k to go, yeah. Nearly. On near yeah. the top. Vingegaard not budging. No budging. Godu is he's just ahead. There's a lot of fans in the road. What's that gap now? Okay. Oh, that's a, a ten, bigger gap. That's a, a full ten gap. minutes since Matthews came across. So another sort of storyline here is the fact that Louis Menchies oh, was yeah. in the breakaway today, and they never he never quite got into the uh, virtual yellow, but he came damn close. And we don't know exactly where he's going to end up. It depends, obviously, where Garrett Thomas and Bardet finish. 
but he's probably moved into the top five, if not the top three. There was a fun tweet from Intermarche uh, during the course of today to uh, Jumbo Visma saying, let us have the yellow jersey, we promise we'll give it back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they need to promise. I think that if Jumbo Visma wanted it back. It's a foregone conclusion. It's nice really. though, isn't it? It's, 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 that's called manners. Uh, Louis, Louis Manches started the day 15 minutes, 46 seconds down. Currently with 1.5k to go. It's just ticked past 10 minutes, 46. I so think we should go outside so we can watch minutes. him come by. Okay. They're, they're cresting the top. All right, we're walking back outside. You can hear the helicopters in the background. We are once again at Sad French Corner. <laughs> it is so hot outside. It's so hot. It's so hot. <laughs> and here come the two GC leaders eyeing each other up. They're heading in for a little match sprint here. Pogacar is leading it out. They're gonna like they're gonna sprint each other for for what? I mean, there's not gonna, there's not gonna be a time gap. He's gonna try anyway. <laughs> there goes David Godu, and here come the Ineos riders. Geraint Thomas with Quintana behind. Adam Yates just gapped a little bit, and then Bardet, Henrik Mass, and Vlasov just behind. The gaps won't be that big between the other GC riders. No, it's like a couple seconds here or there. Godu though in in that third slot. That's a, that's an impressive ride for him. Here we go. We can see we're on a bit of a delay now, so we probably just watched ourselves on television. <laughs> Uh, I think we would have been on television because the camera's right there. We're right past, right before 500. Someone yeah, send us a screenshot right. of ourselves. <laughs> Here we go. Pagatcha leading out. 250 meters to go. Vingegaard isn't. Oh, there we go. Then they go in. The sprint. Vingegaard can't really get out of Pagatcha's slipstream here. But, like, what's the point of this? I know. Fun? Is fun the point of it? it? Might be. I guess so. And yeah, they just crossed the line. Together. Yeah. Didn't really move. Once again, stalemate. Once again. Here comes Jungle Bob. Jersey open Michael Storer. Is Michael Storr old enough to be in this bike race? Uh, we haven't uh, asked for his birth records yet. But I think he's actually quite old now. He's been around for some time. He just looks very young on the bike. Maybe it's the big glasses. Maybe, All right, we should get away from this very loud speaker. So we're actually going to throw to a chat we had while the race is on uh, with Peter Cousins, the author of the new book, Climbers, which is not really what we're talking about, but give him a little plug, so we like Pete. Uh, what we did want to talk with Peter about is, is Tade Pogacar's style of racing and the fact that he, for the first time in decades, is the type of GC rider who likes to ride on the front foot. A course on tete is the sort of old term for it, as Peter will we'll talk about in just a moment. Anyway, it's a good little chat. Let's throw to it. Johnny, it's really hot. <laughs> it's really hot in this press room. Uh, it's actually, we're, we're, we're going back in time at the moment from what you just heard in this podcast. We're now, uh, was it, it's almost four, and there's about 60, 50K to go, something like that. But we wanted to take a moment to talk through what happened early in the stage today because, I, I mean, it was, we've seen a lot of really difficult openers to, to stages this Tour de France, but that was something that, that we haven't really quite seen, which was 
the yellow jersey jumping in breakaways uh, and Tadej Pogacar jumping in breakaways. Oh, Simon Geschke just took some more climbing points. <laughs> Talk me through kind of what happened today for, in case our, our audience out there might have missed that that early chaos. Yeah, we had the usual thing that happens now. I don't know how it relates to stages being televised from the start and the fact that you can like watch on your phone as we do now and we always switch it on in the car, whereas before you just see who clipped off the front for the four-man breakaway. But now it's a proper fight and the first thing that goes is never really it. But then we saw Tadej Pogacar hit out about three times, I think, trying to take himself clear or... There's that early Cat 3 that he was using. Yeah, yeah. the 7.7K 7 long, 3.9%, so not not that hard, but you know, for an early one and after the week they've had. So he kept on hitting out, taking Jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert with him. I mean, Jonas Vingegaard having Wout van Aert at this tour could prove to be the reason he wins it, to yep. sort of hold on in those situations. Um, then we saw GC gr a GC group as the breakaway. Like a reduced yeah, peloton. Yeah, a, a quite reduced move with Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingego in it. Uh, and behind, for at least a little while, was I, I believe Ineos was sort of split I think, off I a think Ineos while. May, well, the thing is, is that uh, I think that time of day is usually when the French TV directors take their lunch and they haven't quite adapted yet to <laughs> the racing we have nowadays. So we, we couldn't really see what... huge swaths of what was happening yeah. on the television. Roglic was in a group behind, but then it all came back together as the proper breakaway went. But we kind of had a pre-race a pre to the race we're used to seeing on these sorts of Tour de France stages. Well, and this brought up the, the subject of when was the last time we saw this? When was the last time we saw GC riders riding like this in a way that the, that is this aggressive? And to help answer that question, We've brought in a special guest today. Peter Cousins, welcome back to the Cyclintus Podcast. Hi, hi, Kaylee. Nice to be here back. Uh, we're going to do a book plug first. What's Go your on latest? Then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stop you doing that. <laughs> no, I'll let you plug it. Tell me about it. I've, I've written a book about climbers. So uh, I guess probably like most cycling fans, they're the riders that kind of uh, attracted me into the sport. And I, the book kind of it goes through the history of of the, them at the major races, particularly at the Tour de France, the introduction of the mountains. But it also kind of, I'm trying to, trying to investigate what's actually going on in a climber's head and also physically what's happening within them as well. So talking to people like Michael Woods, Dan Martin, Ashley Mormon Passio, trying to get an idea of what's the, what's the mental and physical process, what's going on both when they're training, but also when they're racing, what it feels like to, to ride through those kind of packed audiences we saw on Alpe d'Huez and the chaos that's ensuing. I mean, when you talk to these riders, um, what often fascinates me is they've, they've actually got no clue what's going on. They'll, they'll say that, I, I, can't, I can't remember which rider it was, was saying his coach was actually running, running alongside him up Alpe d'Huez one year for, for like a kilometre urging him on. He had no idea he was there. So it's like, what's, what's happening there? And I just kind of, they, they're the riders. I mean, there's this great quote, and it, it unfortunately wasn't me that made it. It was Serge Lager, a cycling historian, said that 15% of the tour's route is in the mountains and 90% of its legends come from the mountains. And that's kind of encapsulate what the sport's all about, I guess. I mean, maybe more than 90%, honestly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Johnny recently uh, wrote about riding up Alpe d'Huez in three hours, so I'm surprised you didn't interview him. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a very different type of book. <laughs> I don't think you sell many copies. <laughs> Anyway, let's get to the topic at hand here. Go check out. You got a, you got a bunch of books now, right? I, I How do, many yeah, books I do. do you have now? I've lost count. 
It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go you know Google Peter Cousins on on Amazon, and I'm sure you can you can or your your you can't Google things at your no, local neighborhood. The how the store. race was won. Is that, is that the American title? That's right. Yeah, how the race was won. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great one. Tactical one. one yeah. The like well, how the race was won. Tactics tactics breakdown. That was yeah. my personal favorite. Yeah. I haven't read your newest yet, unfortunately. I'll have to get my hands on one. <laughs> I've, I, I unfortunately have, have snagged the uh, the press copy, so I'll have to share it. <laughs> That's all right. All right, let's let's get into the, the topic at hand here. Um, Peter, you've been you've been covering this this race for a very long time. Uh, we wanted to talk about sort of the, the eras, and not just eras, but also sort of sort of philosophies of the of the GC riders over the years, and the fact that to sort of Johnny and I's historical knowledge or maybe sort of personal experience, like I've never personally experienced watching a GC rider behave like we're watching Pogaccio and Vingigo because I started covering the Tour de France with the Cadell Evans win. And it basically since then it's been roughly the same. <laughs> uh, and, and all sort of following a very, a very similar uh, strategy or, or, or recipe for, for victory or whatever, whatever term you want to use. So if you think back, who who do uh, who does Vingigo and, and Pogacar who, who does that bring to mind for you sort of over the history of the sport We've, I was talking about this with uh, Jeremy Whittle who's my, my colleague in the car who writes for The Guardian and we were thinking back to uh, essentially to Eddie Merckx I mean before my time a long way before my time even and Merckx had this strategy La Course en Tête whereby you basically made the race I mean it means racing at the head of the race literally and you 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 did you did exactly that Merckx was never out of the first 20 riders in the bunch I mean the bunch wasn't as big as it is now it was probably only 120 riders so it was probably a bit easier to do than it is now but Merckx actually wanted to pressurize his rivals all the time by 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 attacking by keeping them on the back foot by not letting them rest he knew that he was the strongest rider and so in order to to make the most of that strength, he would just keep putting pressure on people by attacking. And even on stages where, like we saw today, where we're going to Mond, they were, I don't know, 160 kilometers from the finish, a long way out, just to kind of keep them guessing so they can't settle. I mean, I guess I should, I should maybe cor mini corrections corner here. I'm actually more talking about Pogaccia than Bingigo at least for this Tour de France. I mean, Vingigo has been aggressive, but he's mostly followed, right? So we're mostly talking about the way that Tadej Pogacar is, is approaching this, mm -hmm. this tour. And it is, it's closer to what you're talking about in terms of trying to put his rivals on the back foot without the use of an incredibly strong team. Because almost everybody else, as we were saying before we hit record here, almost every other sort of major champion since the Mercs era has been pretty defensive. And then the sort of add-on over the last decade and a half, two decades, has been defensive riding with a particularly strong and defensive team, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's essentially what US Postal were doing, what, obviously what Sky was doing. It was just let the brake go, certain number of riders in the brake, make sure they weren't any, anybody who was dangerous to you on GC, and then just kind of eat the ground up, bring them in, probably with the help of the sprinters' teams. I mean, obviously, you had Cav with a, a strong sprint uh, a strong team of domestiques to help him set up a sprint. Sky would rely on that as well, and that's that's kind of all been 
shoved away. I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of a, a side point here, but I think one of the the other interesting things that's happening is the, the bunch sprinters are they're, they're not featuring at all. Their teams are not strong enough to bring these guys back. There's people. It's almost like a, a free for all every day, and Pogacar's part of that. And, and just going back to the Mertz comparison, I mean, Pogacar obviously lost time on the on the Granon, but I still think. Essentially, he's the strongest person in the race. He is the Mercs of this race, and he's just trying to push finger guard all the time, keep him on the back foot. Well, that was that was going to be kind of my follow-up, is what do we think... Why do we think Pogacar has decided this is the right tactic? Is it just confidence or maybe even overconfidence, or is it just the style that he wants to race with? I mean, it is something that we've seen a little bit more often over the last couple of years, even outside of just him. What is it about... Why is he doing this? Why, 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 is it, why does he think it's going to work for him? It's a good question. I mean, the first thing I thought of when we're, you're talking about Merckx and the comparisons to Pogaccia is how much of it is physical, like physical pressure and mental pressure. Because we, uh, Garant Thomas said after the Col de Granon stage that at one point, even though Pogaccia was dropped, he was sort of feigning that he was worse than he was to get Thomas to ride. And then when he went, um, when he smiled at uh, Vingo on the Alpe d'Huez. That's also playing a little mind game. So is is that is that racing, like La Course on Tet? Is that is that is it is it as mental as, as I, I think that, that's all part of it. Yeah, it's kind of playing with you with your opponents, keeping them guessing, and he he's good at that. I mean, he's we've we've seen that we've seen that in classics yeah. that he's he's ridden and won, or or he's gone near to winning. That he's very good at, at kind of manipulating his rivals. He knows how strong he is. He knows that at the right, when the right opportunity comes, he can make the move that will count. But he knows that he can't do it all on his own. And he's kind of trying to, to, to kind of get, keep them going, but, yeah. but also keep them on the back foot. And, and is, it, is it just sort of um, a coincidence that he races like that with a team that isn't as strong as a Sky as a Jumbo Visma, how, mu how much does that play into pushing him to ride like that? Because if he had like six or seven Rafael Micas and you know, yeah. or a couple more Matteo Trentins, would uh -huh. he ride more like we're used to seeing? I get the sense that it is a combination of the fact that he thinks he's the strongest rider in the race, and he's probably correct, and just a, a personality thing. I mean, he, he, he raced like that even when he when nobody knew that he was the strongest, and maybe he didn't know he was the strongest, right? He's always been a, a particularly aggressive racer, and so I'm not sure, I'm not sure he would really change even if he had, you know, a 2014 era Skytrain in front of him, because I don't think it's really the way that he wants to race. Now, you could absolutely see, you know, director sportif stepping in at some point and saying, this is how we win bike races, <laughs> and we're much more likely to win if you do it this way. Uh, because the, the, you know, the other side of this is if he is not strong enough to make this particular tactic work, it's dangerous, right? And in fact, you could probably make an argument that some of the extra effort he was putting in over the first week and a half is, is perhaps why he had such an issue on the Grenon, right? Like, like it, all, these, all these little moves add up, and it's the reason why GC riders have been so conservative and so defensive for so long. You have to be significantly stronger than everybody else in the bike race to make this tactic work, and it could backfire on them. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's what's interesting about that, and I made a when we when the, after the Granon stage, I I made a comparison in a in a piece I wrote with uh, with Merckx at Praloup in 1975 when when he he got caught by Bernard Tevenet on the last climb, and basically Merckx 
absolutely murdered Tevenet for over the over the first part of that climb. And he, he was clear, he was right, he was in the yellow jersey, he was riding away to what seemed like a sixth victory. And then a bit like Pogacar on the Granol, suddenly the wheels came off. There was nothing left. There was nothing left in the tank. He'd been making all these efforts. I mean, Merckx was older, but I mean, he was still only 29 at that point. He wasn't an old guy. And at that, that, I mean, that point is right, that you can kind of push your ass too much of yourself. Did Merckx ever suffer from the same thing that Pogacar did pre-Colder Granon, where it was difficult to really sort of enjoy his racing when he was so dominant. And, and the fact that he did have that, that bad day and like which sort of humanised him has instantly made him more... It's easier to support and, re and root for him. Did, did Merck, do you know if Merckx ever suffered from that sort of thing? Or is this, is this a relatively new sort of age of fandom and like... I think, I think Merckx was like that. I mean, it was interesting when over the winter there were like Merckx and Pogacar, there was some... Um, I, th I think L'Equipe did an interview with them and, and Merckx actually said in that interview, Pogacar is the new cannibal. He's the nearest I've seen to, to what I was like. And I thought that was interesting that he said that, that they both ride. It's not only about collecting titles. It's the way that they, they try and dominate their opponents, the way that they're always trying to, trying to push and, and break their rivals apart. And what's interesting about the, the days we've got left is that I can see Pogacar just trying to pick, I mean, we've seen it already on this stage. It'd be interesting to see what happens at the finish today. He's going to try and pick like 15, 20 seconds at finishes. We've got one today. We've got one at Perigude on the second stage in the Pyrenees. He's going to try and pick those finishes. And then, of course, we get to the time trial on the penultimate day, and we yeah. all know what happens and then. he likes one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Seen this movie before. I, I was also interested when we're talking, when we sort of tried to bring Vingo into it, but then it like, didn't really work. But I think that another comparison to make into the Pogaccia mix is Wout van Aert, who this tour especially, I mean, he's, this is the first tour he's been like amazing and like won in, in incredible ways. But he's raced this race in a, in a, in a cannibalesque way where yeah. nothing is enough for him. <laughs> Like, he, he, even though he's got the yellow jersey, it's like, oh, well, he could maybe still go for the stage if he does it himself. I still, f I still fully feel that if, if Wavanar had a slightly different body type, he would be, it'd be him and Pogacar doing I, I completely it. agree. Yeah, yeah, he's just yeah. a bit too big and yeah. you can't overcome some elements of physics, yeah. basically. If they, if they designed the right tour route for him, if they designed it a route that was like the one that Wiggins won on in 2012, for example, Wout Van Aert would probably clean up or yeah. it would be a great battle between him and Pogacar anyway. I think it'd be, it'd be amazing. Yeah. Not this year, unfortunately. Not this year. Well, Peter, while we've got you here, I did want to I wanted to sort of pivot to some another topic, which is uh, you live in the Pyrenees and we are headed into the Pyrenees. Can, can you provide any sort of know, additional insight into what, particularly this, this, this first two stages, the Hotacom stage, I think it's just the Hotacom stage, but the other two, <laughs> any insight into what you think might throw the peloton for a loop in those or what 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 might happen well the the first of them is uh, from Carcassonne to Foire which is I live just outside Foire six six kilometers away just uh, at the bottom of the the Col de Paguerre which is the final climb they or descent they come down and the, the key the key uh, the key point on that stage is the far side of the, the Paguerre when they come up the Mule which is a climb that I always avoid. <laughs> I never go up there. It's three, or I think it's 3.3 kilometers, averages 12%. It starts with a kilometer at 14, second kilometer is 12, the final kilometer is 10, but by the time you get to the final kilometer, it doesn't feel like it's getting any easier. It's really brutal. And it, the descent actually, it's a long descent down into Fly. It's the best part of 30K, I think. Quite, quite a lot of flat sections on it. It's not hard, but 
if somebody cracks on the Pagare, they could easily lose 30 seconds and then they'd never make that up in the descent. That's what I'm, try I'm trying to remember the descent specifically. There's it's a fair amount of pedaling in it. There is a lot there? of pedaling, yeah. Yeah, and so that obviously, if you're if you're fully cracked, it means that, that anybody who's still riding well is going to take even more time. Exactly, yeah. If everybody's gliding, it's hard to really take too much time. But if, if you're pedaling, which you will be, it could be an even bigger issue. So I, that's a, that's gonna be a very interesting finale to watch, I think, because like you said, I'm trying. I've driven it before after almost catching a clutch on fire on the way up, uh, and I don't remember it being incredibly technical. Uh, no, it's not. It's not too yeah. technical. There's, there's, there's. When you come off the top bit, I mean, like you say, there's a lot of pedaling, and then it gets gets steep for a while, maybe sort of eight, nine percent, very, very fast, and then it, you get into a technical section, maybe six k, and then when you start to come off. You're, you're pedaling a lot, maybe for the last, uh, I would think probably for the last 15K into the finish. So if you've, if you've lost time there, you're really in trouble by the time you get to that point. So if you're Tadej Pogacar and you're looking for those, those little time opportunities, is that one? What, what, do you think is the, what do you think are the best ones for sort of between now and, and the TT? Well, I, th I think that's definitely one. I think the, the day after that, we've got the, we've got the runway finish at, on Perigude. Um, that's that's not as long, but he could probably claw back. I mean, if, obviously, if he's going for the stage win, he gets he could get a 10-second bonus. He could maybe get another 10 or 15 seconds on top of that on that on that climb. We saw Chris Froome lose a bunch of time when when he cracked up there in 2017. And then and then obviously we get to Hotakam after that. And I mean, he could climb. <laughs> he could he could claw the whole lot back on that climb. Yeah, yeah. Or lose even more we don't we don't know we don't know <laughs> it's interesting with that we gotta um, our bets here. <laughs> with that fast stage because we've like after in the previous few years we've sort of sometimes not had all these summit finishes but this year it seems we've really gone back into having like a vast quantity of these summit finishes like has there been is there another mountain stage this tour de france where it's like you hit the climb and it descends down it feels like we the haven't one is, is down that's it but that's yeah. it isn't it we haven't really had everything uh, else to sort of finished right all the cams uphill yeah that's the only one i think yeah. on this race yep well we shall see. We do like a bit of speculation here. Uh, <laughs> I am very much looking forward to the Pyrenees. It's going to be continue to be extremely hot. I believe we're, like I said at the at the start here, we're sitting in a giant million degree tent at the moment. I think we have more of those in our in our future. But really, can we complain when we're not having to ride our bikes up giant mountains? Uh, easier for us than it is for them. Thank you, Peter, for joining us on Thanks, the pod. Katie. Thanks, Johnny. And yeah, go check out all Peter's books because they're all excellent. <laughs>enjoy talking with Peter uh, on this on this on the tour because well he's covered a lot more than we have and he's also just a, a he's an excellent cycling historian he can put things in context really well and maybe we'll catch up with him a couple more times throughout this this Tour de France he's also the nicest man in the press room he is genuinely the maybe on earth possibly on maybe. earth yeah <laughs> the press room press room gets kind of spicy sometimes you know like we, we we have to deal with each other in cramped confines very hot sticky things Tem tempers can flare yeah. we're very tired uh and generally there's some bitching that happens i've never heard peter say a negative word about anything or anybody no i did my first two tours to france with him and the only time i ever saw him uh get annoyed was when the 
roadbook was wrong in the directions because that is a really key part of doing the tour and I think he does a lot of writing for it and his stuff is obviously always correct and so if someone does the wrong direction or hasn't got the right map in the right place then that's when you see his fury. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to today's racing. Uh, lots of storylines, right? I mean, it's sort of the main GC storyline that the Pogaccio Vingago storyline, not a whole lot of change there. Another day of stalemate. Uh, Pogaccio did try, and I think he's going to have to continue to try basically every single opportunity between now and the end of the bike race. But there were some other interesting things that went on. Do, do we know where Munchies ends up now? Yep, he's moved up to seventh overall, so he's risen six places, and he's now four minutes 24 down. That's like so sort of within shouting distance. Also, I don't think Pidcock was actually that distance in the end. He's moved down a place, and it's 8.49. So I think he lost a minute or so, but... The gaps are starting to grow considerably. Still not back ninth at this point in his debut Tour de France. Of course, other major storylines include the fact that Astana is has lost money, Ian? Yeah, uh, on the first rest day when the ASO issue there, um, every, every week or so they issue an update on prize money earned during the Tour de France. We've uh, spoken about this in the past. On that first rest day, they were on a balance of 600 euros. I have been keeping an eye on them ever since, uh, crudely tallying up sums over the days since, and it's not a pretty picture <laughs> for Astana, Kazakhstan, unfortunately. Um, there were forbidden wees, there were forbidden thrown bottles, there was a forbidden feed on Alpduez for Alexei Lutsenko. Uh-oh. Um, so, very crudely, the ASO pays prize money for places that you finish on a stage or places over a, a climb or in an intermediate sprint, those kind of things. Meanwhile, the UCI is on the back of motorbikes, uh, riding along looking for infractions. and Pocket money. Pocket money. <laughs> uh, and they saw some things that they were not happy with. So they are fining Astana while the ASO is giving Astana not very much money, but some money. So I've, I've been uh, tallying it up, gotten out the red pen, punched some sums into the calculator, and Astana at this point, uh, end of stage 14, has earned... 2,240 euros and they have been fined 2,300 Swiss francs uh, which means that after 14 days of back-breaking work from eight riders, now seven, because Gianni Moscon went home on stage eight, dozens of team staffers as well, Astana Kazakhstan has earned minus 94 euros and 12 cents. That's... It's, it's sad. <laughs> it's really, it's pretty sad. Sorry, Astana. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for them as well. I, I would be slightly, uh, slightly more sorry if when I approached the, the team for a comment, uh, they didn't say, no, we will never discuss prize money. <laughs> never. No, never. <laughs> no, never. Maybe, maybe you spelling it out in black and white for them will give them what they need to turn their fortunes around. It's, uh, I'm here to motivate. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit worried that they... I, I don't know if they're keeping as close an eye on their own prize money situation as I am, so it could be quite a rude awakening when they, when they realise that um, the, the, the riders at the end of the race will be, uh, I don't know, chipping into their own kitty <laughs> for a night out. 
What I always love is in that when it when it talks about the illegal feed, I always think of like how you feed a horse with a cupped hand with like a handful of berries and nuts and just a team car pulling upside like Alexei Lukashenko and just holding it out and him just pursing his lips and having a little... I don't know why. Maybe, is that just me? If you also think that, then let me know on the Veda Club Slack. S speaking of uh, treats and feeds on the <laughs> during the race, Mark Soler enjoyed a Coca-Cola-flavoured Calippo earlier today. You're going to have to provide the Calippo context for the Americans out there. Right, a Calippo is um, an ice lolly that is contained within a conical-shaped cone that's made of like car reinforced cardboard and then has a, a lid on top. And they melt quite quickly and there's a sweet spot between them being too frozen and completely melted where you basically just have to hoi it into your <laughs> mouth relatively quickly. After our Slurpee discussion um, yesterday yeah. when Johnny pointed out that blue and pink are the preferred flavours in England, um, <laughs> today he, he was claiming that the Coca-Cola Calippo is the, the only option. And in Australia, we don't even have the Coca-Cola Calippo to the best of my knowledge. It's all about the lemon Calippo. Orange is the go-to. Coca-Cola is like your your more rogue one. But yeah, le when you said lemon, I was like, that doesn't ring a bell for me. We Orange is like, that's what my mind goes to when I say Clippo. I mean, we've really taken, gone into really, really niche territory here, considering we spent time a lot of time talking about slushies yesterday. I, I think that it's important to uh, learn about each other's cultures. Yeah. And the, the Tour de France fundamentally is a, a mixing pot for these kind of um, culinary discoveries. I'm trying to think what the America, American equivalent is. We definitely have that. You have like ice pops, but they're kind of a yeah. bit more of a, they're and like a branded ice pop. Well, and the brand would change for us probably depending on region, I think. Yeah. So like I've, I grew up in a couple different places and, and experienced multiple different types of this thing. Yeah. I'm just watching the television again and, and uh, Pogaccio and Vingago gave themselves a little, little high five after the line. Yeah. So I think... I think that Pogacar is enjoying this. Yeah, that's what Pippa was talking about in when I spoke to her a couple, couple of days ago, I think. She was like, Pogacar will, he's before this in the tour, he's never had to race at his true maximum. He's raced at his maximum, but he's never been pushed to race to someone else's maximum. And yeah. for him, for you know, if you, if you are the best bike rider in the race, we reckon, then that's something that you, you want. You want to be pushed and tested and see what you're capable of. Yeah, he just looks like he's having fun. And he, you know, he, he kind of looks around and he tried to get rid of and go a bunch of times in Alptuez. He tried to get rid of him a bunch of times today. He looks around and he kind of gives a little smile like, oh, you're still there. Well, oh, okay. Yeah, he's also <laughs> 23. I mean, we, we, should, we should really nail down how, old, how young all of these riders are because I can never remember. But he's already won two tours. If he doesn't win one and then goes on to win the next however many, then it's really not the end of the world. And he can enjoy the battle rather than the pressure of like, if I don't win this Tour de France, then maybe this is my only shot. I mean, imagine the lead up to the Tour de France next year should Vingago win, yeah. what that's going to be like. We've got a two-time champion and a defending champion coming together in what, the Basque Country, I think it starts next year? Yeah. Yeah. That will be, that would be quite interesting. I want to flip back over to, to Matthews for a little bit. We said this earlier, but Matthews, uh, it was kind of on paper a good one for him, but at the same time, you know, you would have looked at that final climb and said, oh, it's, that's a Mike Woods or something like that, right? It's a little bit too long. It's a little bit too hard. But Matthews has proved over and over again that he is capable of getting over climbs that we don't always think he's going to get over. I'm still surprised that this is the tactic that he took because realistically, you would also expect him to win out of almost any small group. But if he just had great legs and it looks like he did, we're, we're going to hear from him in the press conference in a little bit. 
then maybe this was the way to do it because it just takes the chance out of it. You know, I mean, if anytime you come into a finish line with multiple riders, there's always the chance something goes wrong or you get the line wrong or you get boxed in or whatever and you end up losing something you should have won. And this was maybe the safest bet for him, even if it was the boldest. I thought he was making his way up the road so that he could, if, if attacks came from behind, from like a Leonard Cameron or Thibaut Pino, he could then try and hang on and would have less of a gap to close towards the top and less distance to make up. But then it became increasingly clear that he had the legs to just ride away from everyone and then sweep down the, the flat off of the climb to the finish line and take it with consummate ease. And then a third, it was third for Thibaut Pino today as well. So yeah. he's, could we eventually see a stage win for him? I was, again, surprised that he picked today. Uh, it doesn't feel like a day for him. I mean, granted, he, as we were saying, sort of joking about before in sad French corner, he's come close on this, this particular finish before, but he came close. He, he didn't win it. And it, again, it doesn't sort of truly fit his abilities on paper. You'd think that one of the harder mountain stages coming up, and maybe he, maybe he will try both, right? Maybe he's just trying everything. But you'd think that, you know, the stage into Foix or something like that would be a better bet for, for Pino. But like I said, you know, we're coming into another hard day tomorrow and then a rest day, and maybe he's just essentially you know, throwing everything at the wall at this point. Michael Matthews, last one, Tour de France stage. We won two in the 2017 edition, stages 14 and 16. So maybe he could also win stage 16 and then double up and tie a really nice, neat little bow over. What's stage 16? Into, into Carcassonne? No, it's the Foix stage. It's the Foix stage? Yeah, 15. Tomorrow's... Tomorrow's, tomorrow's into Carcassonne. yeah. Oof. We get lost here at the Tour de France. I never have any idea what's happening. Well, we, uh, we have some tricky logistics tonight. We have to get off of this little mountain and, and out to some hotels. And frankly, it, just getting around out here is, it's kind of a nightmare. There's, there's no big roads. So we're going to wrap up a bit early today. Before we do, of course, we need a Mayosabla update, Johnny. Today's an interesting one. Rigoberto Uran is still hovering around the hour mark, but he's 59 minutes, nine seconds, which is the closest time to the hour, but obviously doesn't count. But then in 21st place, rising 30 places today, it's a, nut, it's a man who's on one hour, 11 minutes and 54 seconds, which is it's a big chunk of time there of the hour mark. It's also another one who's wearing a jersey already, ah. but has got themselves in there. Simon Clark, no, Simon, Simon Geschke. That's, that's the word. That's the, again, the German Simon we're in Clark, fatigue. <laughs> we're in fatigue mode. Simon yes. Geschke. Good for Simon. Yes, he has a, uh, four, and then Stefan Kung is the next closest uh, four minutes later. So Simon Geschke could hold this for a couple of days. I mean, he is the type of rider who, if he really, you know, put his heart into it, much like we saw George Bennett years ago hang on to it for much of the last week, he could, he could hang on to it through some of the very difficult stages coming up because he could also get in some more breakaways and gain himself an additional buffer, I would say. Especially if he's going to be trying to add to his King of the Mountains points hole. I think it's likely, in fact, that he will be doing that. Well, that battle is clearly heating up. Final word on Caleb Ewan, who was off the back early again today. Did we get confirmation that he came across the line in time, inside time? He could still be on the road. I'm just scrolling down the results here. I think he's still on the road. Yeah, Philippe Gilbert is the last registered rider across the line in 85th. So we're still missing, down, so still we're still missing the groupetto. For, for Caleb Ewan, yeah. Well, and Caleb Ewan was, I, I saw it in the stage, that he was off the back with like three or four other Lotto Sudal riders. He should be okay today, although the, it's not a big mountain stage, so the, the time cut is actually shorter as a percentage of the total time. So 
he could potentially run into issues, but I mean, it looked bad His early on. His leg was all bandaged up. Yeah, I mean, he looked he looked bad, and it looked bad early on because you know with the, with the fireworks that we were talking about at the beginning of our chat with with Peter, you know, he was off the back with like 180k to go or something like that. That's a rough rough day in the saddle for Caleb. So uh, I think he did get back onto the sort, sort of larger groups at one point, uh, but it's still just a, it's a hard it's hard riding in this part of part of France. It is hot out there. We're going to cross our fingers for now and, and hope that he gets across the line in, in time, but we don't know yet because it hasn't happened. Last but not least today, uh, <laughs> again, tour fatigue. Yesterday, in yesterday's podcast, I introduced the wrong bit from Jose. So actually, the bit I introduced yesterday is actually for today. Uh, and we're talking Castellet because we are heading to Carcassonne tomorrow. And there is a there's a bit of a, a bit of a press dinner I think coming together to get everyone together and, and have some some Castellet in addition to the cricket match. Yes, which despite the temperatures probably being around 40 degrees, which maybe the professionals in the Southern Hemisphere play in, but we are by no means professional athletes. It's taking place at 4 p.m. as well. Well, that's what time it's scheduled. So just enough time to let the heat really build throughout the day before we'll go outside and do our first bit of exercise in <laughs> quite a while. Uh, our friend and colleague Chris Marshall Bell over at Cycling Weekly did say that he would give me uh, some pointers, some yeah. tips before we start because I don't know how to play cricket, but we'll see how it goes. Cricket tips for cycling tips. Exactly. Needed. Don't even know what I'm supposed to do with the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Sure am, we'll I supposed to, am I supposed to hit the sticks or not hit the sticks? Am I protecting the sticks oh, or this is the attacking level of, the sticks? Okay, this is the level of knowledge. Okay, this could be good. Kaylee, you're supposed to hit the sticks. <laughs> <laughs> From somebody that may be on the opposite team, you're supposed to hit the, hit <laughs> the, the sticks. The harder the better. So the sticks are behind the thrower guy? The ball is irrelevant. Okay. It's just it's the bat and sticks game. <laughs> What's happening with the ball then? You'd have to worry about that. Okay. It'll be fine. We'll just we'll figure it out tomorrow as we go. And I look forward to that. And we'll be back from Carcassonne tomorrow, just ahead of the final rest day. Whew. Can't wait. Should we hear from Jose? Yeah, let's hear from Jose. Did I actually not throw to her? No. Okay. Let's hear from her. <laughs> Tomorrow's finish, or today's finish, depends on when you listen to this, is in the magnificent city of Carcassonne. In 2018, Magnus Kort won the 15th stage by beating Yoni Zagire. And last year, Mark Cavendish won his fourth stage of that Tour de France and his 34th in total. Carcassonne is a fortified medieval city and unique in Europe for its size and state of preservation. Its history is marked by 2,000 years of conquest. It was an important stronghold in Catharism, a minority religion in Catholic France, and during the Crusades. The walls of the medieval city are three kilometres long and count no less than 52 massive towers. Overhanging wooden ramparts attached to the upper walls of the fortress provided protection to defenders on the wall and allowed them to shoot arrows or drop projectiles on the attackers beneath. In the 19th century, Carcassonne was struck off the roster of official fortifications under Napoleon. But it fell into such disrepair that the French government decided that it should be demolished, causing an uproar among local citizens. A successful campaign was launched to renovate the entire city. However, it was a 19th century interpretation of the Middle Ages and therefore a slightly romanticised version of the original village. Plague-ridden and invested with rats and disease, the average medieval city was not a fun place to live, but who cares? The current Carcassonne is a fantastic sight to see. 
One of the signature dishes of the region is cassoulet. Carcassonne is home to the one and only Cassoulet Academy, which promotes the cassoulet, all the ingredients involved, plus the culture and heritage associated with it. It also aims to bring together the men and women with knowledge of the recipe to make known the culinary creativity, the traditions and the language of the inhabitants of the south of France and to organize events of a gastronomic, cultural, artistic, touristic and media nature with the sole purpose of promoting the development of His Majesty Cassoulet throughout the world and to make known the master cassoulet chefs and wine growers of the region. This all according to the official website of the Académie Universelle de Cassoulet. Yes, the French do take their food and wine very seriously. Cassoulet is a stew of white beans, various meats and vegetables plus spices and herbs. The dish gets its name from the ceramic pot in which the stew is prepared. It's also called a cassole, which is derived from the Occitan local language word cacola, and is used to both prepare and serve the dish. Cassoulet was actually born out of famine. According to a popular legend, Cassoulet was created during the Hundred Years' War between England and France in the 14th and 15th centuries. And due to famine, all residents of the community gathered their last supplies and stacked them together in a cassoulet. Each family contributed an ingredient to the recipe, and this was then cooked for hours in the oven at the local bakery. And what was then a poor man's meal became a traditional French dish. And throughout France, the stew still enjoys a high status and is extremely popular. So dive into your kitchen cabinets and find white beans plus some leftover veg and meat and start cooking. Bon appétit! Well, we're out. We got to go catch an evacuation. Uh dropping off basically they're opening the road as soon as Caleb Ewan comes by and we need to be in that line of cars with the police escort or else we will never get off this mountain so that's it from us today we'll be back tomorrow for the second time bye-bye